Um, the biggest one is what's, what, what's required of your athletes in season. That's the biggest one. So, you know, you've got to sort of scale back from what they're going to be required to do for the 26-week in-season period, and that could be sessional loads. So that could be, you know, what, what, does a match, what does a match look like? You know, what does the mm-hmm. game look like? We've got to prepare for that. It's also, you know, weekly loads. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is Jared Wade. The key topic of today's discussion will be all about the AFL preseason loading and how to structure physical performance work in season. Jared is an experienced strength and conditioning coach, currently the high performance manager at Collingwood Football Club, and over his career, he has worked at the Geelong Football Club, Essendon, and the South Sydney Rabbitohs. In roles such as head of strength, sports science, rehabilitation, and of course, high performance management across AFL and NRL. A strong research professional with a Bachelor of Applied Sports Science focused on human movement and completed his master's degree in research all around strength and power profiling with rugby league athletes. Highlights from today's episode, we discussed the importance of chasing one key area of athlete development each week in season rather than trying to chase all of them. Athletes should get physically better from where they start at rehabilitation to post the three key areas to high-performance environment being people, intent, and the program, why wellness and GPS aren't significant markers for training load or how an athlete is responding to load and what are the metrics to look at, how to use scheduling to your advantage to improve physical resilience while also allowing the athletes to enjoy the process. Let's get into today's episode with Jared. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for jumping on, mate. No worries, Jack. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's dive in the beginning of your career. At what age did you discover you had a passion for strength and conditioning and, and working with elite? Well, it was probably a bit later, really. Like, I did my three-year undergraduate degree, so that was, you know, straight from high school. So when I was 18, I had some success in that degree, but I really didn't know what I was going to use it for or, or do within that. That was the way sort of exercise science degrees or human member degrees were back then. Yep. You could do anything. You could do psychology or teaching or, you know, there, there was any strains that you could do. I probably really, I really enjoyed the coaching side of those courses. So actually practical coaching, either sports coaching or strength conditioning coaching, coaching philosophy, education, teaching. That was my bit of a, that was what I really sort of went to in my undergraduate degree. And then I, I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know where it was going to take it until probably my final year of uni. So I'm 21 at that stage. I hadn't done it. I was a bit of a different pathway because I hadn't, I hadn't worked in the gym. I hadn't done any sort of, you know, practical strength conditioning or fitness instruction work or anything really. And then I was lucky enough there was a really competitive placement through my university at the AIS to do like a seven-week block in the strength and conditioning department. Mm-hmm. Super competitive. You know, I had to pay my own way for travel and accommodation. I had to get certain marks in, in certain subjects to be able to be to get a look in for that. And, and I, I worked hard to get that, got the seven-week placement, went up to Canberra for seven weeks. And after I Saw what that environment was. We'd done the gym floor. There were some good coaches at the time. Julian was there. Julian Jones, who sort of ran that part of it for a very long time. Tim Rogers. There was some Ross Smith. There were some good SNC coaches there. And just watched them for seven weeks. I thought, yeah, this is something that, that I could do. But then, you know, I'd come back from that placement and think, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. But I've still only got my undergraduate degree. And, you know, what pathway do I, how do, how do I get that really? Yeah. yeah. And then through, through that, 
Geelong Football Club actually contacted the University of Ballarat where I was studying, uh, the Federation Union now, and said, do you have anyone who's graduating or gradu- you know, finishing that, that, that undergraduate degree that would be willing to volunteer some time over pre-season? So I'm living in Horsham at the time with my family because I finished uni and moved back to Horsham, wondering what my next step's going to be. And then Geelong's three and a half hours away. And then the university contacted me and said, would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, you know, let's do it. So I volunteered my time over pre-season. That was 2007, so I'm still only 21. Over a full pre-season, volunteered my time in Geelong, driving up on a Sunday night, working at Geelong from Monday to Wednesday, driving back to Horsham on a Wednesday night, working at a pub and trying to earn some cash and that over the weekend while living at home and saving some money. And and at the end of all that, I was like, surely I'm going to get a job out of this. Like, surely, surely yeah. all this hard work, I'm going to get a job. And I end the pre-season finishes and knock on the footy manager's door and I was like, okay, you know, I'm ready, you know, I've got – I can move into a um, mate's place here and I've got accommodation. I can, I can make the move. Can I start getting paid for this? And he went, oh, no, sorry, there's nothing there for you So in season. So I had to go back to the drawing board, really. So I was, that's when I started studying my teaching degree, so a Bachelor of Teaching. Oh, right. I just thought I realised that the industry was so competitive and I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I really wanted to be an S&C coach. What am I going to do if I can't? So I just thought that maybe falling back to be a phys ed teacher and and that was a good a good fallback. So I spent 2007 studying to be a teacher, living in Geelong at this point in time because I, I signed up a deacon in Geelong for a teaching degree, and I was doing a bit of um, volunteer work with Geelong Falcons under 18 comp and a local footy team in Geelong, picking up you know like running warm ups and mm. you know taking a couple of injured players through a, for a cardio session. Like it wasn't much, but I was just trying to get any sort of experience I could in sort of working with people that were trying to get fitter or better or people wanted to become athletes in their junior system. End of 2007 came, Geelong had a really successful year. Obviously, they won the premiership that year and I knock on the GM's door again and I said, oh, hey, mate, you know, uh, firstly, do you remember me from last year? Because often you don't know what they're doing. He said, oh, yeah, no, I remember. And he said, I said, is there anything there for you? And he said, oh, actually, we've got a bit of cash. We can pay you for one day a week's work to come down and do the GPS. And I was like, okay, let's 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 do that. You know, let's... Let's get stuck into that. And they, I remember rocking up on day one of pre-season and a high performance manager at the time, his name was Dean Robinson. He handed me, it was the first time the club had had 47 GPS units. Yeah. So previously they had 10 and they were doing little bits. He handed me 47 GPS units and he goes, right, I work out what we're going to do with those. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, what day? Fair enough. I didn't, didn't, even know what it, didn't even know what it was at the time. You know, that, that had just come into team sports. So I basically got paid for one day we work, one day a week's work in 2008, but worked full time pretty much at the footy club and then I was teaching, doing temp teaching one day a week and I was working at a factory overnight just to try and build up some cash. Still realising that I was probably going to have to be pretty lucky and teaching was where I was going to end up and then the one day a week turned into two days a week, turned into game days and then turned into three days a week and by 2009 I'm a full-time employee. You know, it was it was good to get my foot in the door through the experiences at the AS and Geelong but I worked bloody hard for those first couple of years to keep my foot in the door or you know, keep on banging down the door of the GM to say, you know, is there anything that I can do? Yeah. Oh, what a great insight into what it takes for, for all those listening that might be in their bachelor's degree or completing their master's and just goes to show persistence really does pay, but but also having confidence in yourself to keep knocking on that door, mate. Yeah. And also I think, because I've done a couple of speaking things with undergraduates or, you know, been at, got, gone out to a uni and, and done a, a guest lecture speaker or something like that. And the, the main question is, is like, how do you get your, like, Anyone that's studying their undergraduate degree right now and is in their second or third year and doesn't know what they want to do, that's normal. Mm. You know, that's 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 completely normal in our industry. You know, you might want to go be sports scientist, you might want to go be an exercise physiologist. So it might be, you know, working in a rehab gym as an SNC, might be just working on the gym for your local gym. You know, we don't know or might be working in elite sport. 
Um, that's normal. Most of us that have been through those degrees have not known where it was going to take us. So, you know, if those people that are listening are feeling like that, just realize that that's a normal thing to go through. And, you know, the more opportunities and the more things that you get stuck in there, the more you realize what it is you actually want to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you think back to that moment, that light bulb moment on the experience you had over seven weeks, like what, what really gravitated towards the coaching aspect and, and where you realized like opposed to high school setting or private sector that it was elite sport that you really wanted to work towards? Yeah, I was lucky in that seven-week period. There was three main – because AIS is quite transient. You know, squads go in and out of that training environment, or it was at the time. There was no one sort of full-time housed there except for the the under-21s Australian basketball team at the time was full-time housed there. So I did a bit of work with them. But I was lucky enough at the time that the the national swim team was there for three weeks of the seven weeks I was there. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the application of those athletes and how much they wanted to work and how much they had to work hard for it, going on the pool deck at 5am to watch them, the workloads they were going through in those mornings, then coming to the gym during the middle of the day, watching the S&Cs work with them, and then back on the pool deck in the afternoon. I was just like, you know, it's inspiring to see to see them work with those those people. And the, the other team was, you know, the, the national rowing team was there at the time too. And so you think about the high, probably the two highest volume or highest workload sports there, there are in swimming and rowing. Yeah. historically with the amount, of, the amount of actual work they go through in their training programs and just seeing how the S&C coaches were navigating that, you know, when they'll come in the gym beat up after a two-hour rowing session in the morning, how do you navigate that? What changes do you need to make to you? What you thought the program was going to be? And I just really, I saw some S&C coaches doing some really cool things and I thought, yeah, no, that's, that, that's where I want to be and trying to help these athletes that are already trying their hardest. Like these athletes were really internally self-driven and they were the kind of people that I wanted to work for. People yeah. that really wanted to, to to strive to achieve the best success that they could with the talent they had. Yeah, and, and going back to that point you made in terms of being handed, you know, forty six GPS units and sort of being the first of its time where AFL was experimenting experimenting with having the every player having an hour unit. What was your sort of uh, how did you go about learning how you're going to apply this and building a sports science program? At that time, at that time, it was like the the, the company was GP Sports, who no longer exist anymore. They're under Catapult branding now, but they had a, a technical data scientist and exercise scientist working for that those teams, and they were you know rolling out units to all clubs, and everyone was in this learning phase. So I was really leaning on those guys that had been part of the development of that unit, and what can it what can it tell us? And mind you, what I thought it could tell us then, and what we started out doing. That's not what I do now with GPS. You know, it's evolved so much and, you know, we were using it to track, you know, load or low extremely load, whereas we now know that it doesn't really do that all that well and we, we didn't really understand its limitations. So I'll probably place on a higher value on it than what we do now, really, back then because we thought it was this new technology that we needed to utilise. Yeah. But it was really leaning on the, the people that were involved and the, and the company and, the, and the, the people that were involved in the creation of that unit to say, what, what can this do for us? And they were, you know, the accelerometers, the gyroscopes and obviously the GPS systems there were trying to get all that data and the first 12 months was really a data collection we were putting units on players every day collecting information at that point in time a download to report would take me like three days to do legitimately like to download the gps and then go through the data and get a report of it so you couldn't it wasn't let's look at monday session and make the change for tuesday or wednesday that wasn't how we we're using it yeah. we were just sort of collecting data and, and finding out in the first year and then in the second year we're like okay now we can maybe apply some of the things, but again, like the inferences that we're making off that data back then are totally different to how I view it right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and what you touched on there, I think it's a really good point in terms of you know, not being fixated on where you think you have to go and being rigid, but actually being really open-minded and, and experimenting. Over your career, you've you've done sports science, you've worked in two different footy codes, rehabilitation, head of strength, and then high performance, so literally every role that an SNC can get involved in. Was that your plan early days or, or, or was it a matter of that just putting in putting in the work, doing your best in each role and, and just seeing where that takes you? Well, sort of always been... I've always been data mind. Like I've always had a, a, a you know, I love maths at, at school, high school. I used to, when I was, when I was young, when I was 14 years old, I used to go down to the local basketball team and take stats, you know, I'm not the bar, like missed shots, assists and that kind of stuff. I've always loved numbers. So when I got the job at Geelong as a sports scientist, I thought, you yeah, know, this is, this is me. And my AS experience was like, I want to be a strip conditioning coach, but I got a job at sports. Science, I loved it. Like it's all these numbers and creating Excel charts and pivot charts, like different ways to represent data. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, but I always did have this burning desire to be an S and C coach because I was watching. You know, Paul Haynes was S and C coach at the time at Geelong, and I was watching him and the work he was doing with players, and I was the energy he had for the job, being there for the players, his commitment to making them better. I was just like, yeah, I want to, I want to do that. So <clears throat> during my time at Geelong, I sort of picked up bits of S and C. You know, assisting in the gym, or towards the end, I was sort of helping facilitate some of the rehab running sessions. And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, I need to make a decision now. Is it going to be S&C or is it going to be sports or And then I went down and found, you know, the next S&C job, which was, which was at Essendon as the rehab coach. And then probably when I, I was getting some really good advice at the time. And, and as mentioned before, Dean Robinson was there and he was really an analytical guy, but a really great coach as well. And I still speak to him today. I'm like, I'm like career moves. Like, you know, he's been through the ringer on this and supplement stuff and that kind of stuff, but it doesn't change him as a person and my relationship with him, like I still talk to him all the time um, when I make a major career move. And he told me pretty early on, he, he to get to the point where he was high performance manager, he'd worked at, in every role. Mm. He'd been the rehab coach, he'd been the weights coach, he'd been the sports scientist. And that meant that he sort of understood uh, each challenges that people face in those roles, understood the value of those roles, the organisation. And so, yeah, from my time at Essendon, I started almost – you know, plotting that 10 years in advance, you know, to get to be the, the, the head of the department was yeah. to make sure that I experienced everything there was to experience in the department. Yeah, and was that amongst everything in terms of personal life and 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 where you want to go as a career, but was that, you know, sort of a top three thing that you would consider when you're looking at changing clubs or, or looking for the next opportunity? Is that a, a different role that's going to stretch you? Yeah, definitely. And I was lucky enough to get a lot of internal promotions along the way. So I went to Essendon as a rehab coach and then worked alongside Suki Hobson, who was the strength coach at the time. She's now at the Milwaukee Bucks doing unbelievable things, like best strength coach I've ever seen operate on the gym floor. Like she's she's absolutely unbelievable. Her programs are, are off the charts, how good they are. So I got to learn a lot of her in two years. And then she moves on from the Essendon footy club and then there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And so I go, yeah, right, let's jump at that opportunity. And then spend a couple of years doing that. And then I get to the end of that point in time and talking to people that I trust and know and, you know, about what else is out there. And they're like, well, have you thought about a different sport or an institute system or, you know, yeah. your own experience because AFL can be quite insular in itself as well. You know, to become a better rounder practitioner, go and experience something else and an opportunity comes up. It was a Parramatta Eels at the time in the NRL and I was like, as a strength coach, so I was doing the role, was comfortable in it, sort of knew what the way I wanted to go got reached out to and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll jump at that and make them go to Sydney to work in that sport again to become a better rounded practitioner. So some pretty deliberate moves along the way. Yeah. You're definitely, you're definitely right in saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was leaning on the advice that Dean Robinson gave you in terms of being the, the best leader you can be. And others. And strength initiative coaches like Suki Hobson, who was working in AFL at the time, she'd come from an institute system. Yeah. And she was always telling me to be a better S&C coach, 
and to better understand different athletic needs and that kind of stuff. Like you couldn't get you couldn't get as far as strength and power goes. The difference between rugby league and AFL is you know it's, it's bipolar. It's completely different set of needs and requirements mm. for the game. So the conditioning component component is actually pretty similar, I think. You've been intimate team sports, but the strength and power component is vastly different and different type of athletic profile. So to go and experience that, learn it, and now bring some of that information and bring some of those learnings back into the AFL environment. Yeah, just a lot of people around me were, were supporting me and, and giving me good advice to, to take those career moves. Yeah, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on more of this in detail later on with the key topic. But when you go back into the AFL, how much of the rugby experience are you leaning on from a contact point of view, but also the strength and power work in the gym? And then, like you mentioned, the conditioning, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, there's, there's heaps. When I went to NRL from AFL, I took so much learning from the AFL environment and how to do aerobic conditioning and all the things the AFL does really well, how to transfer that to, to rugby league players and, and make them better. Mm-hmm. Um, when I come back, I bring so much from the rugby league environment back into AFL and then obviously been worked in AFL before, be able to keep some of the key groundings for AFL sport too. So, yeah, I think both codes can learn a lot from each other. There's no doubt about that. I'd say actually, like, despite being a despite being an overall less voluminous game, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the actual game on the weekend, there's less running distance if you want a lot of GPS or it goes for a, 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 a lower duration of time in rugby league than AFL, but they do more work. So they've they got a more voluminous program. Or the clubs that I worked at, they did more work than AFL clubs. Yeah. You know, and I've got data to back that up as far as time spent on feet. And, you know, some of the pre-seasons we did at NRL were, were huge, like bigger than what the AFL does because there's just this thirst for work ethic, but there's also this robustness and strength amongst the athletes that allows you to do that. So mm. I then come back to AFL and go, right, eh, we might not be able to do that much work now with the current group we've got, but if we make them more robust and more strong and you know just better overall athletes, then we're going to be able to increase the workloads of this group we've got here over the coming couple of seasons. And, yeah, with what you touched on there, like, do you think that is predominantly getting the mindset in place first and then the work sort of comes with that? Or do you first need to build the physical resilience to be able to match the mindset? It's both, but you've got to get the mindset pretty early. Like the first... Right. I came to Collingwood last year, first season of Collingwood, and the first couple of weeks were huge for the athletes to get around a different mentality to train or a different yeah. attitude to training. One of the slogans that I've got, and you know, I'm not claiming this one, Wayne Bennett gave me this one. He'd have it over years and years and years of being you know, the most experienced and most highly credentialed rugby league coach of all time. His biggest catch cry for players through pre-season we just don't have to feel good to train good and I felt like when I was last in the AFL environments and people that I know that work in AFL environments we often don't take that mantra a yeah. player comes in a bit sore you know wellness flag and if you collect that information or you know sore from previous session or sore from previous week's workload or whatever you know we often have a tendency to maybe back off in that scenario and say oh you know a download might help that that athlete out Mm. Um, that's not what pre-season is about for me. Pre-season is about building resilience and rugby league have that mindset. You don't have to feel good to train good. So you might be beaten up, you might be battered. You know, they, those guys go through a ridiculous amount of physical toll on the weekends, but two days later they come in and they're ready to get to work. So that's a mindset that I've tried to bring back. And it was early on in pre-season last year coming back and changing that mindset. Mindset was very, very, one of the first things that you have to change. Yeah, we're very, very lucky. We had a group of athletes that were willing to do that and willing to buy in. And then you start working on the physical components required to increase the training program to be what you want it to be. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And going back to your, your career, you've mentioned some strong influences already. Is there anyone that's been missed out in terms of mentors, if you like, to help you where you are today? Oh, no, there's, there's heaps. Like, you know, any any colleague I've worked with, I've learned something off. That's, 
you know, physiotherapists, doctors, stroke physician coaches, people I'm working alongside, people I'm working under. There's not a person that hasn't sort of hasn't that I haven't learned something off, and I'm not using parts of what they've done previously in their program. I'm using parts of them now in our, our current program. Suki Hobson's still a mentor of my sheep. I talk to her you now quite frequently, um, just about life, but then also programming and challenges and all that kind of stuff. I've got people I take career advice off, like Dean Robinson and Paul Devlin, who was a high performance manager who got me across to the NRL. Mm-hmm. If it was on my phone, I got you know talked to him three, four times a week. Really, yeah, still, well, you know, have, yeah. have not have not worked for him just as a mate, really, and just like. Again, he understands he doesn't work in sport anymore. But he understands it and lean on him for advice or, you know, this challenge. And, you know, any challenge that I face hasn't been faced by someone else beforehand. It's just the truth. So the more that I continue to connect with people that I, that I value in my corner, there's a chance that one of them might have experienced a challenge and might have help with how I'm going to deal with that challenge in my work life. Yeah. Awesome, mate. Yeah, well said. That's that's a good insight in terms of yeah, leaning on your support. And and what about over your career? What are some highlights that spring first to mind that you look back on fondly? Look, I was super lucky to start at Geelong, like 2007 or 2011, when my five years there, and there's there's three premierships and four grand finals. And certainly, like you know, I'm just going, how easy is this caper? But I was only playing a very small role at that point in time in my career. Like I was just a really, really tiny part of this massive cog that was being really successful. And I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say, like I. I'd, I'm a competitive person. I hate losing and mm. I love success. So that's why I do this job is for success to help a group of athletes achieve success. That's why I do it or an individual athlete achieve success. So I definitely look back on those years of pretty fondly. I mean, I learned, I learned a lot there about, because my role is quite small, but they had a really high quality sort of upper echelon of, of staff with their general manager, Neil Barm, it was at the time. Footy manager was Steve Hocking at the time. He's now back there as a CEO and, and Bomber Thompson, you know, no matter how small you thought your role was in that organisation, every time that we had team success and we won a premiership, it was inclusive. Mm-hmm. They celebrated every single little person that, that played a part along the way. So that's something I try and do now. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a team effort and I learned that pretty early on is that you've got to value everyone's role within that, within that team environment, both mm-hmm. players and staff. Yeah, teams, I, I sort of lean back to team success or individual player success. Like um, I'm a rehab coach. So if I, someone asked me what my main sort of role would be within the performance department, I still think I'm a rehab coach. I still think that was the most sort of rewarding, most fulfilling role that I've held. I don't exact like a specific example. When I got to the Rabbitohs, there was a guy there that had done three ACLs in the previous two years. He was 19 years old. Yeah, and we went back to the surgeon to have his third surgery and had to have bone grafts and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people wrote that kid off. Like a lot of people said, you know, he's he's probably predisposed from the way he moves or he's got strength deficits or he's now got a really compromised knee or whatever that is. His name was it was Connor Tracy. He wouldn't mind me telling this story. But getting to work with that kid as the rehab coach for 12 months and seeing him grow and seeing him develop and getting back to play NRL footy when people – They'd written him off. They didn't think he was going to be able to do that. I find those really rewarding experiences as well. Mm. Sort of why I always, certainly in season, once pre-season's finished, I lean myself to be hanging out with the rehab guys because you can sort of go on that emotional journey with them and help them get back to doing what they love. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And with with that phase that you talked about, like how much throughout that journey did that player have self-doubt that you sort of had to help give him guidance? I'd say the whole way, you know. Like yeah. There wasn't there wasn't a day that went by, and I think that's what rehab being a rehab coach does for you. Is it you've got to have a fair bit of sort of empathy and social awareness, and and you know the player doesn't come if a, a player was injured, 
So an injury takes away a player's ability to do what they love. Mm. And for some people, it takes away their ability to earn money for their family. Like that's the reality of injuries in sport and they're part of sport and they're what we do. So, you know, you'd be lying if you said that every player that gets injured comes with a smile on their face every day. Like that's not the reality. That's not reality. They come in in all kinds of moods, but you're then that person that's got to either talk them into getting to work and getting better or realise that say it might be a lost cause and let's just, let's just bump it. Let's, let's have a couple of days off and shift it to a couple of those time because we can see that you're mentally struggling. So I really, really enjoy those rehab experiences. I think that sets up a grounding for any SNC coach to be able to work with group, even if you go work in group settings, being a rehab coach means you're sort of working on those soft skills of, of the emotional side of sport. Yeah, that's something that sort of just popped up in my head as you're talking about that. Like you mentioned early on, the, your passion for maths and the data and, and you know, almost being a performance analyst as a hobby early days. And then on the, you know, later in your career that you love for the coaching side and the art of it, if you want to call it that, of the, of the human element. Is that something that was sort of ingrained early as well? As someone mentioned, that, you know, be, you're going to have all the skills to be an elite S&C or is it something that just as a person you've sort of had passion for those areas? More as a person, you know, the passion of those areas, realised I needed to go out and learn them, understand them, study them. Like people think that sort of soft skills or that, or that art of coaching is something that you just get a feel for. That's not true. Like, there's so much research out there, so many good books, so many people doing great research in the psychological space for how to, how to deal with athletes. So I recommend anyone who wants to be an S&C coach, go and read those books and get those resources because it is something that you can learn. Yeah. Obviously, there's an innate, an innate amount of empathy and that you need to have as a person, but you can pick up those skills. And so, like I did when I was being a sports scientist, and I was like, let's go and learn about what GPS is and learn everything that can do. There was a period in my career where I was like, okay, you know, programming's pretty good. Know how to write a gym program. Know how to write a block of work. Know how to write a conditioning program. Know all of these rehab processes. You know, I've got the got the hard X's and O's right. I need to go and learn around the soft skills, how to actually manage, how to influence, how to get buy-in from athletes. And that's something that I preach massively now, a sort of a philosophy and strength and conditioning that I've had for a few years now and developed it over a long time. And it's it's three tiers. It's people first, intent second, and the program comes third. Because a really, really solid program um, that's given to an athlete on a piece of paper without any empathy or any buy-in from them or any of that kind of stuff, that's not going to work. Whereas if you're buying into them as a person first, understanding them what's making them tick, you know, they're struggling with home life at the moment and that's why they don't have all the energy to come into, like, understanding them as a person first and treating them as a person first, not a, not a number on a bit of paper, not a distance ran or not a score on a wellness. That's not who they are. Yeah. And then they're making sure you get buying intent in everything you do. And that's a two-way street. That's not you delivering something to a player and being that authoritarian and saying, you have to do all this or give me 10 push-ups. It's having a conversation with them and say, hey, I think this is going to make you a better athlete. What do you think? Because of these reasons, you know, is it something that you want to get into or is it something that you think there's a different way to do it? Or, And it's a two-way communication to come with the best program for that player to maximise their, their athletic potential. Yeah, awesome, mate. Thanks for sharing that in, in terms of your philosophy and, and those three tiers that resonates massively. And in, on the flip side, what about significant challenges you've faced over your career working in elite sport? Obviously, there's lots of pressure involved in, in those roles. Yeah, what are some challenges you've faced and then how have you grown from it as a practitioner? Yeah, there's heaps of challenges. Like every day there's a challenge. That's what I love about this 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 caper. Mm-hmm. Not a day I go to work and I'm not presented with some sort of challenge that needs to be dealt with immediately or, you know, I need to have a bit of a think about it or not. There's always challenges. That's the industry that we work in. So that might be staff members. I'm going to be challenging with staff members. How are staff communicating? You know, is my rehab coach talking to the physios and, and is that process running in sync so that we've got the player at the forefront of that process? And 
it might be with a player, you know, a, a specific issue they've got physically that we're requiring, you know, doctor, medical staff, strength coaches to all get in a room and have a bit of a think tank about how we're going to get the player out of the slump or, you know, how we're going to improve their performance or they're not super progressing in the areas you want to be. So every day's a challenge. There's probably two that come out and stick to mind as far as things that I've really grown and learned from. And I was at Essendon through the time of all the supplements sort of scandal that happened mm-hmm. back in 2012 through to 2016. And, you know, at, Professional sporting landscape comes with adversity. It comes with adversity and comes with pressure. I was also at Parramatta Eels when they went through like terrible salary cap breaches, and that's not the fault of us as staff members, but all the play, you know, mm. you know, that's just what they do. The time we got all our points stripped off, first missed the final series when we should have made finals, and we had a really strong squad that year. And so I've been in environments where we've had to pick up the pieces. You know, on a, on, a, on a Sunday night, the NRL turns around and says Parramatta have been Western third on the ladder. Parramatta have been stripped of all their points this year until they get under the salary cap. Right. So you're not going to make finals. And you've got to come, that happens on a Sunday night, and then you've got to come to work on a Monday and we're preparing for a game on a Friday night. You've got to pick up the pieces. You've got to get the players back in the mindset to perform. And I think the thing I learned through this and Southern stuff and the Parramatta stuff is that your program should be fun. Like the, the, we can all get built up on this stress of coming to work and making it all serious and you're playing premiership points. Like the reality is that's not why our players do this job. They do this job because it's fun. They're playing footy. It's a footy club. So maintaining fun within the program and make, making sure that we're – that's why we do it. We do it to have fun and making sure we're, we're creating an environment with the playing group that, that can do that. Another challenge that comes to mind, this is more an individual one, again, back to the rehab space, like – I have a mentality of rehab, but I have had all the time that every athlete, you know, it's not not unique, not new. Everyone does this. When a player returns from an injury, you know, they should be somewhat physically better than what they were when they got injured. Whether that's more robust or you've improved some sort of physical capacity, but you've got some time to do some development work with that player. So let's get them better. 2017, taken over as the, the rehab coach of the Rabbitohs and round one comes and Greg Inglis does his ACL and this is Greg Inglis is one of the most genetically built athletic freaks that you will ever see. Like this guy, he didn't need to train to be as good as what he is, but he was stronger than everyone else, more powerful than everyone else. He didn't necessarily push himself with cardio work, but he could beat most people if he wanted to, if he wanted to on the day. He was that athletically gifted. And so he does his ACL, and I'm thinking, how am I going to improve this bloke? Now, how am I going to return him after 12 months and make him a better athlete than what he is today? Because he's the best athlete I've ever seen. Mm. basically, as far as speed, power, and all that kind of stuff goes. So, and then also how did I get by? And I didn't, I'd worked with Greg for a whole pre-season, and, and I was running rehab and doing sports science. I didn't have a relationship with him, really, because he was quite a sort of unique character with, amongst the group, and he, he was a bit like he liked to keep his circle close to him and had a few people that he trusted within the organisation, and I'd have chats to him and see him on the gym floor and, how are you going? But I had no need to really build a strong relationship with him because GPS wasn't going to make him better, and that's what I was essentially doing at the club and so so it was scaling all that back and building a relationship with him and making sure that I got buy-in and and something I learned out of that whole process was that no matter what happens you've got to put the athlete first in this whole scenario whether it's S&C athletic development rehab whatever the athlete's got to come first and I'd say through the 12 months of Greg's ACL rehab he had more days off than I've ever experienced in anyone's rehab but that was part of how he coped that was mm-hmm. part of what he needed to be able to get back to the plane and he got back to playing and he played Origin the year that he came back. And, you know, so he got back, but there was some there were some things that I had to do differently because of who he was as a person and what and what his needs were. And then I had to, A, you know, get him to buy into what I was doing and have that two-way communication with him. And then I had to go make that sell to the GM, to the, yeah. to the doctors, to the coaches, wherever I said, oh, Greg needs two weeks off. 
you know, he's been back running for four weeks. To me, the progressions that we had planned, but he needs two weeks off. Otherwise, we're not going to gain anything out of training over the next two weeks. And then we've got to kill him and get GM going, why, you know, why is that happening? You know, all these reasons, these reasons, this reason, these reasons. Trust me that this is the right way to go about this rehab. Yeah, so that was a really big, big learning experience, but a massive challenge to try and get buy-in in that particular athlete at that time. Yeah, yeah it's super interesting and, and, and seems to make a lot of sense in terms of context, in terms of your tiers and, and why you value the, the person first and understanding who they are because it sounds like you had to sort of forge that with with Greg early days to build that relationship. With, with the, yeah, from definitely. the objective objective side like with someone like that who is so gifted how, how did he go with objective measures did he, did, did he not care at all or did that still motivate him no nah, he didn't care at all and, and we went through our normal sort of acl processes where we're collecting a lot of information you know and we've got our set criteria so return to run and our set criteria for return to train the reality is is that he didn't do anything for four weeks and was in a, in a brace for four weeks and didn't do a thing and he came out of a brace and within a week had cleared criteria to return to run so he could, you know, if we're going criteria base, he's returned around at six weeks. He was that good healer and he just got things back like physically. So, so yeah, own set of rules. Yeah, it's a completely different set of rules. You know, throw the throw the ACL manual book out the window and 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 sort of build one specific for him as an athlete. Yeah. And then those conversations you're having with the club, but you know, it's their best player. Clearly they want him. They've got to trust you, but at the same time, they'd, they'd want him back and making sure that they're back. he's back quick. How did you go yourself managing that and, and coping with that, with you know, giving yeah. him two weeks off and, and different rules? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough, but I think with, on the staff side, that's where the objective data came in handy. Yeah. To say, have a, have a look at what he's, he's still off. tracking. Like, have, a look, have a look at where he's at and where he's tracking. Yeah. A really good example of was his return to play, right? So we had him geared up to play round one the following year, so a full 12 months post-ACL. He had the Indigenous All-Stars game six weeks before that. And then as I got to work with him, got to know him, I realised that, that you know, as a club, we're tracking for round one, but that's not what he's tracking for. The yeah, Indigenous All-Star games meant, meant so much to him. He was going to be captain of that team for the first time as an Indigenous Australian being captain of the Indigenous All-Stars team. It was like he was so desperate to play in that. So, so then towards the back of that rehab, convincing the coach – the GM, the doctor, and the physio who were all involved in that rehab process, convincing them that he was at no further risk playing in that Indigenous All Stars yeah, game was what he would be around one. Yeah, that's objective data though, and presenting all of this information. And people always I tell the story a couple of times when I say, Were we nervous? No, no, I wasn't nervous because I had all the information there. I knew he was going to be fine. You know, it wasn't going to be an issue for him because of the bank of work and the stuff that I had done with him and realized that he was, he could have played it seven months like he was that far ahead off the timelines and so when you're that confident you know and i wanted him to play because i knew how much i meant to him as a person so i'm going into bat for him i'm going into push because and i wouldn't do that if i wasn't confident that it was going to be okay yeah and the, obviously you were super supportive of him and, and i imagine that would have helped a lot the building rapport but were there times where you actually had to push him and he had to respect your ideas and and, and actually do work when maybe he didn't want to or not have a rest day? Yeah, nah, yeah. As I said, it was always two-way communication. I think all rehab processes are, uh, are. And I think the rehab athlete, they want to be, they want to feel really valued because it's easy for them to just fall by the wayside in a team sport. So the rehab athlete might be on a slightly different schedule. They might be missing some meetings. They might not have great connection with their coaching group at the time because the coaches are focusing on those people that are available. So even now, any injured player that we get, we have an injury. They're coming into my office two days after to have a chat. Now, what other needs? Here's the requirements that we've got as a club. 
I'm not involved in rehab that much anymore. You know, I leave that up to the physios and our rehab coach, Dean Philopolis. But, you know, I'm still having that chat with them two days after saying these are the things that I think are going to make this rehab the successful outcome for you. So there's going to be time to work and all that kind of stuff. And then each week I'm trying to touch base with each one of those players that's injured just to sort of make sure we're aligned to make sure that we're all gearing towards the same direction. Greg was no different. We had sort of really, really strong discussions every week, every session about where he was at. And, you know, sometimes you'd be like, I just can't do it today. And then I'd say, I need you to do it today for these mm-hmm. reasons, you know. And we get through we get through this outcome over the next three days, there's a break coming or there's something coming, you know. I can give you that carrot at the end, but for right now, I need you to work. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Thanks so much for sharing that, no doubt. And the SCs and, and those working in rehab physiotherapists as well would be loving that story. So, yeah, great insight. And I've just realised no one we've spent a fair bit on, on rehab and, and across everything in sport, and we haven't even touched on your, your topic. So. No, no, yeah, I, I, tend to do that, I tend to do that a little bit, unfortunately. Yeah, same, mate. It was, it was, I get um, passionate yeah. about it. It's good. And, yeah, you can tell, as you said, you see yourself as a rehab coach, so clearly it's something you're passionate about. So thanks for sharing. But, yeah, going into the key topic that you chose, pre-season loading and the, and also physical performance work in season. As we mentioned off air, it's, it's a hot topic at the moment, both pre-season loading as, as well as getting in physical work in, in season. But what are some key considerations from a pre-season point of view loading in, in the AFL for you? The biggest one is what's, what, what's required of your athletes in season. That's the biggest one. So, you know, you've got to sort of scale back from what they're going to be required to do for the 26 week in season period and that could be sessional loads so that could be you know what what does the match what does a match look like you know what does the mm-hmm. game look like we've got to prepare them for that it's also you know weekly loads what does that look like in season and we've got to prepare them for that or have consideration of that and what will a four four or five week block look like you know what what happens when we go to a congested schedule and we got a five-day break or two six-day turnarounds or you know all of those things have got to be considered because that need that a basis for how i load what the frequency of the training sessions is and all that kind of stuff in season. I think a mistake that I, I made in my first year when I took over the head of performance role is I sort of I wanted to scale back a little bit on the frequency of training and go to bigger voluminous sessions and train three, say, three times a week, which is a pretty typical structure, right? Monday, Wednesday, Friday, sort of pre-season training. But then when we got to the in-season period, just through working with a new coach and a guy I worked with for before, I realised that we were going to be on feet five days out of the week in season. And there's a huge mistake in that, you know, three days a week in, in pre-season hasn't prepared us to run five days a week in season because the coach wanted to recover a skill session, two main run sessions, a captain's run of the game. There's five, five on-feet sessions. So I think having an idea of what your in-season is going to look like and then work back from that and that'll, be, that'll become the real good grounding of what your pre-season loading will look like from a frequency and then how much work you need to do. Yeah. And, and you touched on like congested fixtures. So when you get your upcoming fixture, which I think we get the full AFL fixture nowadays, don't we? Since COVID, fifteen weeks, I think the first fifteen week weeks. Yeah, yeah. So it's getting closer. But and you see maybe I don't know round ten to round fourteen, you've got that quick turnaround, some travel, so really tough schedule. How does how do you sort of factor that in into your preseason loading? Yeah, well, it's just about finding out for me what the worst case scenario is from a training load point of view. So I don't really use GPS for training load. Anymore, I'm just I'm going a bit old school and just looking at time and RPE and and that kind of thing, you know, sessional RPE and time and 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 calculating that across training load and you know it's easy to go week to week to go like round one, round two, round three, but that's not how load manifests itself in an athlete. It's daily because you know week to week could include two games or week to week could include one game or no games or whatever. So. Sort of work on that rolling sort of seven and twenty one and twenty eight day average of workload, or, or and then have a look with your planning in season. What what is the maximum that we're going to require to do? So, 
is it, you know, two training sessions and two games in the space of, you know, seven days, that might be a peak. Okay, let's look at that peak. Then my goal in pre-season is whatever you think the peak might be in season, I'm hoping to get sort of 20 or 30% above that in pre-season. So 120, 130% of what that in-season might look like. The worst I'm case. To get that. I'm trying to get that as my biggest week in pre-season. So we're spending yep. a lot of time. We're probably spending the better part of three or four weeks maintaining what we think the peak are going to be. But then when we bump up the loads into our sort of, you know, big big hit week or big peak week, that we sort of chase an increase on 20 or 30% of what that'll be. That's my general philosophy in that phase of training, yeah. Yeah, and and that's an extra 20, 30% of, of their session RPE. Is that yeah, session just, RPE and time. Yeah, yeah. I, either, either within one session, it's hard to do an AFL within one session because the game goes for 180 minutes, like it's really tough. Yeah, yeah. But across a, but across a week of work, it's achievable. And across yep. a three or four week block of work, it's also really achievable. Yep. And and what's your take on letting the players know when that's coming and, and slash surprising them so they you know they've got that ability to adapt, I guess, to be Yeah. I've done it both ways, but more more leaning towards let them know it's coming now so they can prepare for that. Yeah. Pre season and in season, I get them in front of the group probably at the start of each month and I'll just use like emojis as like smiley faces of like this is how I expect you to feel throughout this block of work. Mm-hmm. So when we get to our big three-way block in pre-season, it's like red face, red face, angry face, angry face. And I'm like, I don't, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want you to, we're not going to be hitting PBs in the gym or PBs for speed or whatever through this training block. You're under high stress, high load. Get your head around it. Don't have to feel good to train good. Let's get stuck into the work because yeah. it's going to make us better in the long run. Yeah. And how have you found athletes to respond to that? Like, yeah, giving them clarity and 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 also understanding the context of what you mentioned before, referring to that work rate. Yeah, you know, you'd have to feel good to to train good. Wayne Bennett sort of philosophy. How I, they respond? Yeah, now I think the more clarity you give them, the better they respond. That's why that's why I probably land, landed on because I have done it the other way and just just sort of sprung the big week on them hmm. or sprung training sessions on them out of willy nilly just to add load or whatever. I have done it that way too, and thought it was it worked okay, but. I think you just get, you know, potentially in that week when you train them a bit harder, an athlete now might pay a bit more attention to their diet. Yeah. They might pay a bit more attention to catching up on sleep because they realize they're under heavy training training stress. And if they don't get things outside of the footy club right at those periods of time, then it might come back to bite them through fatigue or injury. So, yeah, I think having the conversations with them is is really valuable. Yeah. And going into, like, I guess, GPS and, and, and load management. Can you give us con- like a bit of clarity on, on why you think GPS isn't a good measure for training load? So, yeah, I don't like it. I've come to the conclusion, like training load, impact on the body. That's the way I view training load. So what is the impact on either the system or the, or the body? You know, is it metabolic or mechanical impact? That's how I view load. And GPS inherently is like, you know, all the satellites in the sky. It's just how a player moves. Like where, so it's not even how a player moves. It's where a player's moved and how quick. Mm-hmm. We did a PhD study when I was at the Rabbitohs with a, a, a guy there, Dan Glassbrook's his name, and we got IMUs and put them on the lower extremities, put them on their training boots and looked at the actual you know, impact loads as good as we can get them without being in a lab with those IMU devices, and we compared that to the loads we'll get from GPS, and they just weren't. They just weren't anywhere near, you know. So GPS isn't telling us what load there is happening on the body. So that's why I don't necessarily use GPS for load metrics. What GPS is really, really good at is performance metrics. How quickly can you move from A to B? 
how quickly can the team move from A to B? You know, we look at, you know, for, there's a lot of talk at the moment around peak intensity periods or worst case scenarios in game, but we look at that. We look at what, what individual match running outputs will be over sort of three or five minute period for each player and then make sure that if we're doing a small sided game or we're doing match simulation over preseason, the players are achieving what they're capable of in a game. So we're preparing them for that. Yeah. Um, that's just one component. That's just the running component. That's where we use GPS a little bit more in and around strategy and tactical and any, any sort of tactical periodization work we do with the coaches is more around the, the locomotion and the movement of players within that. Yeah. Um, but I don't use it. I don't use it for load. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it's performance and, and using it to guide your training and your session plans with coaches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And it, it can give you a, a guide on what the running outcomes will be for that session. Mm-hmm. But if we've planned for a nine K session, so we still I still do all this, right? If we plan for a nine K session with the coaches, if I'm watching the live and it's going to turn out to be an eleven K session, I'm not stopping it. Like I'm just not. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know because I don't that, that that distance metric isn't telling me what the what the impact on the players' bodies are. Mm-hmm. So I used to live in a space where I was like, oh, we've got to make sure we hit those distance loads or high speed meters or whatever that is. I used to live in that space. Mm-hmm. I have. The more I've lived out of that space, the more I realised that they're not going to that's not going to break. As long as you're comfortable enough that they're robust enough to handle it. Like if you go 25% over the running distance, they're not going to break. If you plan for a session RP of six, but all of a sudden it's a nine because of drill design, okay, mm-hmm. now we've got some issues. You know, we didn't want a high-intensity session here. We're in a lower-intensity session here. So then I've got to work with the coaches to make sure drill selection and drill design is going to get that outcome from an RPE point of view. Yeah. And then the fact that you're using a session RPE is, as one of your main measures of, of guidance. How do you how do you go about educating the the athletes to really take that seriously and respect the the process of of giving that feedback? Yeah, most athletes have gone through it, right? Most athletes, when they get to the elite level, right, they've they've used RPE in NAB Cup or in the NAB League, or and most of them had experience with it. But we do go through a huge education process, and I think. In my experience, an athlete just wants to know how you're going to use the data. Like, why? Mm, like, yeah. I'm not, this data is not there to hurt you. I'm not taking this data to a coach to say, oh, he's slacking a little bit, he's up here, he's low. That's not. They want to make sure that it's being used to help them as an individual. So we educate strongly around that. But then I find that when we do that, we get really, really good buying and then giving us accurate information and not just sort of saying, same, 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 yeah. And I don't, yeah. like, I don't do wellness Right, I don't do a wellness questionnaire. It's not something that I do, have done. Mm-hmm. Um, found that I don't get a lot out of it. So I'll make a commitment to each group that I work with and I'm not going to collect any information off you that I'm not going to use. Mm. I think when you do that and you're now just collecting a couple of different things that you value, you know are valid, they know they're reliable, you know they can tell you a picture with that athlete. And it's, but it's from an athlete point of view, it's so minimal stress to them. We're not doing this big battery of testing or making you log into your phone or whatever. It's, you know, we're asking you a question. Mm. But if we scale things back and the players see that we're using it, then we get really good buying with it. Yep. And is that a matter of asking them straight after the session in private, like the sports scientists sort of doing that, or how do you go about collecting that data? Yeah. Yeah, that's how we do it. You know, when they give their GPS back, you know, when we've yep. got the chart there ready to go with all the explanation words and all that, you know, and then, you know, in, in any new persons of the club or any young player that we get through the draft B system, we're going to might take three or four weeks to educate them fully on what those numbers mean. Mm-hmm. difference between a six and a seven or a seven and eight or whatever. But as long as the sports scientist that information knows and can understand and can have those conversations and we get really good outcomes. Yeah. And, and scrapping wellness, how do you go about sort of monitoring how the, the group has handled those big, 
big week sessions and if you make do you need to make any adjustments is that sort of just speaking and getting around the players is that physio screening and giving your feedback like talk us through your process in has yeah we're gonna get a lot of get a lot of feedback off the physios like they're getting they'd like to get manual hands-on therapy at least once sometimes twice or three times a week right so and in that they've got a physio standing behind them talking to them for half an hour so they're gonna you know they're gonna unload they're gonna unload there they're gonna stay i'm sore here on top there and all that information has got to come back to us because if we've got you know as i said with our red smiley faces if we're in a period of soreness physios know that's the case as well so they're not going to feed everything back to me I understand that they're sore. I understand what's going on. You know, if we're in a period where we're supposed to be green faces and we're supposed to be unloading a little bit and have the players feeling fresh, but we've still got a lot of soreness, then physios will feed that information back to me and we can have a look at where either individuals or the group is as a whole within our periodization plan. You know, we every morning before a training session, I'm out on the gym floor as they're doing their prep and I'm trying to get to each individual player one-on-one conversation just to ask how they're doing, how'd you sleep, you know, you've been fueling yourself right and all, all that kind of stuff. We have some physical metrics that we collect, camera movement jumps, squat jumps, reactive jumps, things like that in the gym. They give us some indication of when a player may be lagging from a physical point of view, but so much can go into that. So much can affect that measure. You know, a coffee in the morning could affect a yeah. power measure and camera movement jump. So more more conversations with the players, yeah. yeah. Um, and then getting feedback off the coaches. You know, I might be in a coaches meeting, you know, with the with the tactical coaches, whereas the SSCs and the strength coaches are out on the gym floor with them. Well, after those gym sessions, after those three gym group rotations, I'm going to our strength coach and going, you know, how were they? How was the energy? How was the vibes? Anyone was struggling, anyone was lacking, and it's more sort of soft skills and data collection. Yeah. And, and touching on what you mentioned earlier, how important it is, particularly something you noticed during those times at Parramatta and Essendon, uh, to, you know, to have fun and allow the players to have that environment where they enjoy their time at the club. For SNCs or anyone working in performance, what would be some of your go-tos to when maybe they are going through that tough training block and you know the, you know, the, the staff need to get around them and actually build that energy because the players are going through a pretty tough block? What would be yeah. some of your go-tos to, to manifest energy? Fun. Be willing, be willing to change your plan to do that. But there's also it's a couple of easy wins. You can plan a bit of psychology here with the players. You really can. Like we can show them, we show them a training session every single day. Like we outlay to them in the meeting pre-training. This is what we're going to get through today. These are the drills. These are the running. This is this is what the session looks like. I'm happy to add if I, if I'm in a, if I'm if we're in a state of wanting the load, but wanting the players to feel like they're fresh. Mm. We can manipulate that. We can add a couple of training drills to the bottom and then get to that point in time in the session. So, oh, boys, we're not going to do that training drills. Those trainings are been really good. You'll get a psychological benefit to that. Our players, like, we have three gym, three gym group rotations in the afternoon to keep our gym groups nice and tight, get really quality S&C coaching within that. Every now and then, once a month, yeah, well, let's have an all-in-one session, get the music yeah. cranked up, players get out early. You know, there's, there's easy wins to be able to manipulate the psychology of players. So, and then again, like, that's where I used to not tell them they were in the hardest training block because it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, you're going to be feeling yeah. sore. You know, like, oh, I am feeling sore. Yeah. You know, rugby league players were a little bit more like, oh, I don't need to know that. I just want to get out and do the work. And yeah. so you put them through this incredible training block and then do a more we'll collecting GPS at this time, right? So there's another reason. You put them through the biggest week that they've done, but at the end of the week, you do a all-in-one gym session and get them out early. So get them out at 1 o'clock on a Friday rather than 4 p.m. on a Friday. Boys, mm. go to the beach, chill out, recover, do whatever. Pick up the wellness when they feel it on a Saturday morning and it's like great. Like everyone's feeling yeah. amazing. 
Yeah. You know, you've just been through the hardest week. So there's definitely a psychology to trying to make the players feel a little bit better through those hard hard training blocks. Yeah. And is there ever a flip where you you want them to, to, to actually be going through really tough times, like from a mental point of view, where you're making it actually hard for them? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. Like I think you can you – can, like we – and again, I used to live in the space where I used to think downloads generally worked, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to deload this group and freshen them up, whatever. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think your periodization program should allow for all of that. You know, how frequent you're training when you're giving them days off and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like that's why I like presenting to them this next phase. Hey, this week, and I'll present to them when we get to that week. So I'm presenting the four-week block. Then when we get to the fourth week where we're red, we're red line, and we're going to do most load we've done all preseason. I'm getting up in front of him on a Monday, and I'm saying, "This is the week, boys. Come on, let's let's grind through this. Mm-hmm. Let's get through this. Yeah, you know, this, this is this is where we're at. This is the most important week of our preseason to make sure we get through the the workload that we're going to put you under. Let's get excited for it. Yeah, get to work. Yeah, and when you're planning your days or sorry your weeks and when that's going to be the toughest week, who would sort of influence your decision making, or who would you lean on to? know when that week is the right week to go when you're planning. Well, sort of yeah, we plan it out. Myself and the head coach plan all that out. Sort of what I do most of the planning, present it to him and say, this is where it is. and then But then be, being willing to change that plan as well. When I first come to Collingwood, I did a four-week plan for pre-Christmas, you know, week four being the hardest. I just use a general periodization build across the four weeks. We got to the third week and the information coming back to me from physios, from players, and all the sort of, you know, chats I was having with them, they were like gone. Mm. You know, and so the, I was putting the group under a little bit of a new workload, so we couldn't do the fourth week, and we mm-hmm. couldn't get them to, to that point. So you got to make a, a coaching call at that point in time. So well, what are we going to do? Well, let's give them three days off. Now, let's not let's not train. Let's do let's give them three days off, and then instead of doing a training session, let's go down to MSAC and do a pool session. That's a bit of fun, and you know, get them out, get them in a different environment because we just felt that as a whole collective staff, all of the information that we're getting that wasn't like data, wasn't wellness, but all the coach the conversations the coaches were having, that physios were having, all that kind of stuff led to us thinking, is this group right on the edge? Mm-hmm. And if we try for another week, we don't know how it's going to go. Yep, yep. Uh, makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, there's a key to being meticulous with your planning and getting people involved, but then also being nimble when you're in the moment. Yeah, have a really solid plan. Like, you've got to be really well planned, but, but yeah, the change of the plan all the time, almost daily, some yep. changes. Yeah, and flipping into the in-season mode, yeah, Hattie, what are some of the challenges that you face when trying to get performance work in in-season? Yeah, it's a big it's a big one because and then this was sort of my master's research, right? So I was looking at the strength and power profiles of rugby league guys across two seasons of work. Mm-hmm. And then off the back of that, what we found was, and I was writing the strength programs at the time, so I had this mentality that I think we should be proven towards the end of the year. And we found that our senior guys were getting their best strength and power scores at the end of the year. And so there's this mindset of like, we can still get better in season. It's not like pre-season, let's get better as athletes. And in season, let's just play the game and hang on. I don't have that mindset. So, and these challenging times, it's the biggest one because overall my mindset is in season, we should be spending less time in the building than in pre-season. But within that, there's more time going to coaching, right? There's more reviews, previews, game education, opposition meetings, all this kind of stuff. So as an SNC department, we get less time. So we go with the, I love the term micro-dosing, but we go with that approach is we're trying to get athletic development work in through different parts. So we might not do a full traditional strength training program. We might have an extra 20 minutes of athletic development work in the strength training program, focusing on agility or breaking strength or whatever it is. Yep. And then looking at it to be, looking at your turnarounds and looking at it to be, let's not chase everything every week in season. 
Mm. And that's a real challenge. You might think, oh, we need to hit agility, we need to hit acceleration, we need to hit speed every week. No, look at it as a month block and say, let's hopefully we can get speed, strength, agility, conditioning. Hopefully we can hit everything once or twice over this month and then use and turn around. So on a five-day turnaround, we might not do anything. But on a six-day turnaround, we get an opportunity to do some things. On a nine-day turnaround, yeah, we can get in the gym, we can go a bit heavier. So looking at your turnarounds and then staying over a month or over a six-week block, have we got enough stimuluses of each one to potentially be improving? Mm-hmm. And if we don't, then we might look at it and say, oh, I'm in the six-day turnaround, we've actually got to force issue a little bit with our guys as long as they recover really well from the game. So I think times are the big one and turnarounds. And then in elite sport, it's like injury status. I used to get really frustrated when you've got this great like team periodization plan, like, oh, we're going to do conditioning today and it's our only chance to do it in this six weeks. So we're going to do a 10-minute block of conditioning work on. But you've got four of your key players that are banged up from the weekend and can't run. Mm. I used to get so frustrated. Now I'm just like, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, like, would it be great if they could get it in? Yes. We'll just get, we'll catch that up in three or four weeks' time. So realizing that, you know, those minor injuries aren't going to keep a player out from a game, you know, they're not in rehab, but they're not going to be able to train today. They're just not ready to go. Just moving towards a bit of a longer term view with those blokes and not getting stressed about it. That's what I used to, I used to do that a lot and I try and do less of that now. Yeah, like a bit of a side note question or a sideball question, I guess. But in terms of where you see the industry could go with with this mindset of of putting in the work, could you see potential you know, days in a preseason when you do three field sessions in a day that some other codes do in, in AFL? Or do you think that there's certain loads that are just too far? No, I, 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 my experience is that as far as the human body goes, anything's possible. Mm. It's just how you get there. So if we tried to do that this preseason at Collingwood, they wouldn't last. They, would, they wouldn't handle it because they're not prepared for it. But if you're making slow, gradual increases and in improvement or whatever, like the 100-metre time keeps on coming down. I'm not sure anyone will be sustained, but, you know, athleticism keeps on getting better in the, in the human race. So I just, you know, we had a last year when I was at Geelong, 2011, we'd, the, through the 2007 to 2010, we'd had a really like traditional Monday, Wednesday, Friday training block in preseason. Yeah. And we had the new head coach come in and say, I want the boys on feet six days a week. And as a performance staff, we're going, okay, well, he wants that. So we're going to make it happen. You know, we can't do a week one because we haven't done that before. But let's build them today. He wants it. Let's build them to it. And we got them there. You know, like we just didn't take huge steps in that and go, I was just going to be on feet six days a week and then whoever breaks, breaks. That wasn't the mentality. It was like, let's get them there. You know, something the head coach wants to do because he feels like he can get more football work in across the week if we do that. Yes, wait, let's let's facilitate it. Let's start them here and let's get them there. So I think the human, I think, yeah, if you want to do three sessions a day, it's possible. It's just a matter of how you actually get to that point. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, what about some common mistakes you've seen performance teams make or perhaps yourself that you've learned from that you factor in when you're planning your in-season performance work? Yeah, I'll go back to the biggest mistake, and I've made it. I've been in that, I've been as a weights coach and made this mistake is to stop trying to improve. Mm-hmm. You know, get to the end of preseason and think, geez, all of our athletic dom work's done here. They're strong, all, you know, our, bend, our strength testing's gone up, our fitness has gone up. You know, let's, let's, that's, got, that's got us to the start line of the season. Let's just stop trying to improve and just maintain. I think that's the biggest mistake you can make because you can still make gains. And inherently, like when I'm running the preseason like I do, where my preseason has more volume than my in-season period. So the in-season actually, for a lot of the players that go through my pre-seasons, they go, well, in-season's actually easier. Yeah. Because pre-season was ridiculous. And yeah. so now when the load comes off them, well, what happens then? We get a spike in performance. 
So, you know, things like speed and strength and acceleration and these physical components, they can actually get better because they're not under this huge amount of load and fatigue. So I think the biggest one, the biggest mistake, I think, yeah, to stop trying to improve in season. And then another, like, another huge, huge mistake that I see in season is filling the players' time up with things that don't matter. And an example of this, and I'll, I might annoy some people, but like, we don't do recovery post-game next day. We, we, don't, we don't do it. We're not training for 72 hours post the first game. So the bodies are going to recover in 72 hours. Research, research shows us that. You know, so if I want to do a beach recovery session at 10 o'clock in the morning after a night game when the guys haven't got home to bed until 1 a.m. and probably haven't got to sleep till 3 a.m., Mm. But I've got to, they're now going to get up at 8 a.m. to drive to the beach to a recovery session. I'm taking away the number one thing for recovery. Yeah. I'm taking away their ability to sleep. So I think you can try and do things that make you as a practitioner feel good and say, isn't I a coach? Yeah, we're doing the holistic recovery. Oh, yeah, I brought these boys in for an extra session on this day. When you look at it and say, is that actually helping them? Mm. Or are they better off just getting an extra sleep? Or are they better off having a day off? You know, we don't bring them in on our days off. We don't bring them in for extra physio. You know, it's a day off. You know, you should you should be switching off mentally and, and physically. Yeah, uh, awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for for sharing that, mate. That's a awesome, awesome insight, and also great to just see, yeah, you know, as you've mentioned in different experiences and due to what the environment's providing and what's going on, how you're able to pivot quickly and, and adjust things, yeah, you know, for what's best for the athletes. For uh, moving into the lighter side, mate, when your work life, what are your favourite ways to spend a, a day off on that note that you're talking about? Yeah, I actually, I actually have a day. Like I actually have a day off, so. I, yeah, you know, when I first start working with any new crew of staff, they can get quite frustrated because I'm just I'm not I'm sorry, I'm not available on yeah. my on my day off, you know, unless it's super, super, super important. You know, and I really encourage all of our staff to, you know, it's a day it's a day off to spend it with your family. If I've got the kids at home, you know, and they're not in daycare or, or whatever, then I'm just hanging out with the kids, going to playgrounds, that kind of stuff. If I happen to get like enough that the kids are in daycare and I've got a day off, then I'm I'm sitting down to read a book or listen to a podcast but it will be unrelated to sport you know i'm not i'm not unfortunately i'm not listening to the prepare like a pro podcast on my day off it's just it's just not happening i'll i'll reserve that for my work days um of yeah getting a work-life balance of being on and then off i think is really really important because you can be on all the time and i've done that being on all the time yeah and you get to halfway through the year and you burn out and you've got no energy to do anything so yeah my days off are off yeah so yeah yeah, and then what about pet peeves? Do you have any work-life pet peeves uh, or anything that annoys you? Oh, yeah, there's a few, there's a few of those. No, one of my biggest ones, and it was sort of a big thing that our coach preached this year, was I'm, I'm so lucky to do what I do. I'm so lucky to be able to work in the job that I work in. I realise that I'm not everyone gets to wake up and go to like their hobby or go to their you know, to, to go, I get to go to a footy club. You know, I spend three hours outside kicking balls around, having laughs. I've got all these like-minded people around me, players just all striving for one goal. Like it's a really, it's a really positive place to work in. So I think you can, everyone, everyone's got this tendency to complain or think about what's wrong or always look at the negative or there's these things going wrong. And I think as an industry, we just sit back and just, you know, like to encourage everyone to sit back and just smell the roses a little bit and, the theme our head coach had this year, just really, we're lucky to do what we do and just go enjoy it. You know, have fun. Don't don't let the little things get in the way if you're having a good time at work because there's other jobs that we could be doing that we wouldn't be having as much fun in. That's the reality. You know, we're all here because this is a hobby of ours. Yeah, sport and players are there because it's a hobby of theirs. So 
maximize that time, you know, have fun doing it and, and sit back and, and realize how lucky you are rather than getting stressed about the little things that the X's and O's too much. Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine it'd be infectious, right, if the head coach has got that mindset and, and seems it would resonate with yourself in how important it is to have that balance of switching off but also bringing fun into the workplace. It's going to you know, have a ripple effect across the whole environment. Yeah, it does. And it took, some, it took people some time to get used to that environment here, here at, at Collingwood last season. It, did. it took people time over the pre-season to get used to it, but the consistency of it meant people just had to buy into that, you know, and then, and then it became really, really, you know, obviously we had, for AFL fans out there, our, you know, they can see what a fun ride it was to be on throughout the season. We're all these close games and doing this thing that no one expected us to do and all that kind of stuff. That's enjoyable, but we were having fun doing it because of this reason, because of this environment that, that we built, yeah. Yeah. yeah and because, yeah. We're, and because we're, we're focusing on the positives. That's sort of another another thing I've learned in my coaching, going back to sort of more technical side, is, is I used to, as a strength coach, do a lot of weakness-based programming. So I used to be... Oh, yeah, this bloke's not strong. Let's just do strength work. You know, oh, this bloke's not powerful. So we're just going to make sure he gets more powerful. And you, you get to a point in that scenario where you're bashing your head against a brick wall and not getting any improvements. Athletes aren't enjoying it because they're doing these things they're not good at. And you're not enjoying it because you're not seeing any improvement in a guy that might not improve in that area. So, yeah, I'm, I'm big on chasing what players are good at. You know, they're here for a reason. When they get to the AFL level, they're there for a reason. They've excelled in their junior careers for a reason. So I'm... I'm I'm not saying I ignore weaknesses. Certainly, if a bloke is challenged in a certain area, we'll pay some attention to it. But predominantly, a strength-based programming guy. And like, I want, I want my elite runners to be the most elite runners. I want my fastest guys to be the fastest guys. Realizing that your fastest guys aren't going to be your elite conditioning runners. It's just not that you, know, you might have a freak that can do it, but mm. your fastest guys are generally going to be challenged from an aerobic point of view. But now let's let's hone into what they're good at. What got them here? And what's going to make them a better player, and it's generally going to be their strength and their weakness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, final technical question, but on that note, like when they're doing the off-season programming, and do you bucket people into yeah how they are physically, what they're so for a speed, fast, twitch type athlete, you program shorter reps, for example, and then a more aerobic person, you challenge them with longer intervals. Is, is that how it feeds into programming, or do you? Is it more just you know a footballer? They're all going to need to cover the ground. They're all going to, you know, they're all. No, nah, we've, the we've got. We've got. But we've got buckets like in the off season. I'd like to leave the players their own devices for a little bit. Like even till we get to the point now, I haven't sent any specific program out to them yet. I've sent ideas as individuals. Hey, this is you know I've spoken to them all about this over the course of the year. But this is your this is the type of running that you should be doing now. Mm-hmm. Whether that means more longer endurance type running or more you know MAS type running or short interval stuff or sprint work, whatever. Mm-hmm. I say I'm a strength-based coach. I'm actually off-season, I find, is that weakness area. That's where you can go and get to work on your weakness. So mm-hmm. if speed's not your thing, well, go and work at it for 10 weeks because you've got a better chance of getting better at it in the off-season in the absence of all of the footy load. If yeah. you want to go and get down to a track and work with a track coach for 10 weeks, he might be able to improve you in that short period of time. And then you can carry those improvements in the pre-season because we're not going to, if you're not quick, we're not going to improve your speed in pre-season. There's too much else going on. We're spending, you know, upwards of 10 minutes on it in the week. So we're not necessarily going to make huge improvements. You could spend three hours on it each week over the course of an off-season. So, so it's sort of just giving them guidelines of what areas I think they need to work at in this period. Probably about now, four weeks out from our pre-season start time, I'll send now each player something really specific and say, right, here's your four-week lead-in to, to day one of pre-season to make sure you're up at the training lows that we want to achieve on in week one. 
Yeah. And so it's a build to get to that point. Yeah. And, and the motive behind that is to, like you mentioned, it's important to freshen them up. And, but is it also so from a buying perspective, because they're not, you know, you know, listening to you over a whole 10 weeks, they actually get six weeks of their own device to experiment. And then the four weeks, you feel like you get a bigger buy in of actual compliance. Yeah. I definitely get more compliance doing that and waste less of my time. Yep. I could sit down and write everyone a truly individualized program, but I'm a realist. I know, I understand the psyche of these guys. Like they want to break. You mm. see the pre-season, in-season period is hard. They want to break. So if I send really specific programs out to everyone, I'm going to get some people that do it and do every single rep and do every single thing. There's going to be some, but I'm going to get a lot of other people that are going to do half of that program or 50% of it. Well, I'm, it's a lot of my time going in that program. So I just do. Mm in a really good space now with each athlete to say, hey, this is time for you to go and, you know, there's two or three weeks post-season where you really should do nothing. If you've completed most of the training year, only really train if you feel like you need to, you know, just relax, yeah. recover. Yeah. And then there's a four, three or four-week period where you need to train, but it doesn't need to be that specific. You just need to get it going. You need to do some gym work. You need to go on some runs. Maybe your lens is going to be to more – Critical speed training, right? We're doing two, 90 second, two minute, three minute interval training. Okay, I'll send you out some ideas for sessions to do in that space, but you just need to do some work mm-hmm. so that your body's in a really good enough point to start the program, the four week leading program. And again, that program is not about smashing yourself either. That's just getting the body to a good point to start pre season because we're going to build in pre season. So, you know, that's just the way I love you off season. It's as much as a mental freshen up as it is physical. Yeah, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for jumping on, mate, and sharing with us your, your journey, the highs and lows of a, a career in uh, you know elite sport, and also great to catch up. Like you said, it was a fantastic first year at Collingwood with, I think it was 10 close games in a row. It was pretty riveting footy to watch. Was that part of the, the preparation, like close games and how to you know win those close competitive games, or was it well, something that just sort of built? Over time, no, we 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 did. I think that's that's been widely publicised. That we did that training in pre-season. Like, did we know that we we're going to need to use it so many times? No. Did we yeah. think we we're going to need to use that so many times? Absolutely not. Like, you think you get that situation two or three times for the year where you're in a close one and you need to either win the game, come from behind, or vice versa. But we practice it weekly, and that obviously held us in good stead when we went on that run. But we certainly didn't do it because we thought we were going to be in that situation needing to use it yeah we thought we might have needed to use it once or twice and we just used it as a way to motivate players through some of those harder blocks of training do some scenario based stuff a really motivation tool put mm. something up on the scoreboard and that and then you start getting intent because they're all competitors so yeah we just we just drip fed it in just because we thought it was a good thing to do not because we thought that we were going to need it as often as we did but obviously you know it's something that did hold us in good stead when we got to the close ones, except towards the end, we lost a couple of close ones at the end. Harder than yeah. the end of the year. Yeah, for sure. Oh, mate, yeah, thanks again for, for jumping on. And what about for the rest of the year, mate? Is there something that you're excited about for the rest of 2022 being in your off-season? And, and also for the listeners tuning in either live or, or via the podcast recording, is there a place that they can get in contact for any follow-up questions from listening into the episode? Yeah, any follow-up questions, Twitter's the best place. So I think uh, Wadey142 is the, is the Twitter handle. I'm offering filtering through on there as a sort of resource and happy for anyone to sort of shoot me a message on there. I'm happy to field any questions. I like connecting with... Um, SNC coaches, I like, you know, like sharing ideas and all that kind of stuff. So feel free to reach out. As far as what I'm excited for, actually, tomorrow I'm leaving to go to uh, the UK for three weeks. It's half, let's call it half professional development and half just a bit of a, a, a trip. 
yep. away. But the head coach and myself are heading over there. We're going to spend some time with the England Rugby Union team. We're spending some time with Tottenham Potspur. We're spending some time with the Royal College of Music. They've got a Centre of Performance Science there, like trying to – they're looking at research and practical applications in – different industries in teamwork and high-performance environments and performing under pressure. And right. so, again, thinking, out, thinking outside the box is, you know, what, what, what do they do? What, what do they do? have got a really good reputation for being a really high-performing environment. So, yeah, we're going over there to spend a couple of days at a, a few different places and then have some downtime in between that, travel around London and, and, and spend a bit of time in Europe. And so we're leaving tomorrow. I'm clearly starting to look forward to that trip and that should be fun. Good way to spend yeah. off-season. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like a yeah, great trip. Three different or well, three elite environments. That'll be a lot of fun and then being able to let your hair down as well. So yeah, it sounds like a great trip and, and well deserved. Well, yeah, thanks again for, for jumping on and, and for everyone that's tuned in live. If you're tuned in halfway, make sure to listen to the YouTube recording. You can watch that as soon as we click off live here and then the podcast we publish in the next couple of weeks on, on Wednesday. Our next live chat will be with Tyson Popplestone. That's this Thursday at two thirty PM. So I'll see you guys then. Thanks again, Jared. Thank you, Jack. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is... Um... It'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it 
yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, it might be whatever as an S&C coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.